You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Parsha Shmini. Um, this parsha, interestingly enough, always falls on or around, uh, with rare exception. Every once in a while it comes before Pesach, but usually I should say it falls around the period of Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaTzmaut. Um, and I think that these parashiyot, Shmini and then Achremot Kedoshim, speak a lot to that topic. Um, I was actually reminded of a story while I was thinking about what to talk about this morning. Um, I, the facts might be a little hazy because it's been a while, but I believe this was called Bochan Aricha. I don't know if it was actually called Bochan Aricha or we just called it that because that was the mountain they took us up on. But, uh, in fact, I have to share this with my son, who actually is probably going to go through this soon. He's in Kostinim. Um, they took us out into the middle of the desert. This is in the middle of uh, Badechad, in officer's training in the Israeli army. They took us um, out in the middle of the desert, and they started us off on a run. I think it was a 9 or a 10-kilometer run, which at the time, today would kill me, but at the time wasn't such a big deal. Um, except that for the last two kilometers, in addition to all our gear, they made us put on our gas masks. And we didn't know. They just told us to bring them with us, and we thought it was like part of the gear. You know, This was like that period of time uh, where this stuff was on people's minds. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves running with gas masks. Now, when you run with a gas mask on, first of all, you know, we'd all done it before. These are guys in officer's course, so they've experienced life as soldiers, sergeants for a while. And there's like a trick to kind of putting it a little up on your face so that you can breathe through the bottom. But they, of course, all knew this trick, and they made sure and inspected each of us to pull the straps tight so we were really running in our gas masks. The first thing that happens is you begin to have a really hard time breathing. The second thing that happens is your your mask fogs over, which many people sort of in corona are starting to experience with their glasses. So you can't see, you can't breathe, you're running with all your gear. This becomes torturous. After about two kilometers of this, like 10, 15 minutes, when we're really like starting to sweat and exhausted, they all of a sudden tell us to stop, and they tell us that we have to head up in squads up this mountain. Okay? And the goal is to get up the mountain, get down the other side, and whatever's on the other side. And we don't know exactly what's going on. So we get up the mountain, we start... You know, you can't really run up a mountain. You're kind of climbing up the mountain, but you're being timed, right? And as we start heading up this mountain, along the way, there are these stations. And there are chonchim, madrichechir, um, um, like sort of the, 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 the teachers, the instructors at Barachab. And there's a few of them waiting along the way. I've since heard that they do this in every officer's course, but they change it up every time so that, you know, cadets won't be able to tell the next group what's coming. And different things happen at different courses. And at one point, about halfway up the mountain, they say, okay, you have to get to the top of the mountain. And you have to be sure, like, you might be attacked by enemy forces. You might be, you know, whatever. So we kind of switched off. You know, we're carrying every gear, you know, reapportioning it. All of a sudden, we're about, I don't know, I would say um, maybe two-thirds of the way up. So you can see the top, but it's probably a good 20 minutes left. And all of a sudden, we, someone from behind a rock throws these red smoke grenades. And that's a sign that you're under fire. And we all try to hit the ground, but there's nowhere to hit the ground. And then a guy jumps up and says, okay, two of you are now hit. Okay? Two of you are wounded. And so what we have to do is we have to 
quickly rearrange all our gear, and two of us have to carry these guys. Now, you can't open up a stretcher on a steep mountain like this, so we're now carrying two of the guys, right? And as things unfold, I just happen to find myself leading the squad. Like, we could, at any one point, anyone could lead the squad, but it happened to be my turn. So I'm leading the squad, and I see that we're almost at the top. We've got like 15, 20 you know, feet left, and, and, and we're exhausted, and we're sweating, right? And so I'm, I kind of get in this mode of like, you know, the leader, and I'm leading the man, and I start, you know, grabbing the guy behind me and pulling him, and come on, Hevra, we're going to get to the top, yalla kadima, whatever, and I drive everybody up, and I'm all over, and all of a sudden, the two guys pop out from behind these boulders at the top, and spray us, you know, sort of, as it were, with, with, with paint or whatever they had in their, in their cans, and, and we're, all, we're all finished. And we basically failed. And because we failed, and almost everybody there was cut down by these two guys, right? So there's no point to the exercise. And we have to go down, and we have to do the whole thing again. Now, I later heard that almost every squad failed this. Like, that was the point, right? Thank you very much. So I thought about this a lot. Like, they always wanted us to think about this or whatever. And I realized that what had happened was that my passion got away from me. You know, sometimes you get so in the moment... You're so driven, you're so passionate, you're so excited that you forget to take that pause. And one of the lessons that they wanted to teach us was that you can never stop thinking. You can never stop pausing. You have to constantly look at the terrain. Years later in Lebanon, this actually saved my life on at least two occasions. You're constantly walking and imagining if somebody was going to attack me, where would they attack me from? You know what? If I was a terrorist, I would hide in that grove of trees. Well, if we got attacked right now from that grove of trees, because you can't go check out every grove of trees, then what would I do? Well, I guess I would, hmm, I would lay down a cover fire over there, and we'd take cover in this ditch, and then I'd move around, and that's what you keep doing. And you do this every time. It becomes a game. It actually helps you pass by all these boring patrols day after day, week after week, sometimes month after month, until one day it actually happens. And because you were doing that, it just saves you, right? But I wasn't doing that. I was so excited to like get these guys up and we made it to the top that I completely lost my perspective. I was caught up in the moment. Now, why do I tell you this? Because this week, I mean, the, 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 the connection of these topics is an interesting one. You know, we're sort of into Korbanot, into the Avodah of the Kohanim, and this is actually Yom Chanukat HaMishkan, right? Yom HaShmini is called Shmini, the eighth day, because it's the eighth day of consecrating the Mishkan. Right, a year after they get out of Mitzrayim, it's actually Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Okay, they've left Egypt behind. They've been through the desert. They made this terrible, terrible mistake of Cheta um, Egel. Hashem isn't talking to them. Right, there's no communication between Hashem and Am Yisrael from that point until now. Right, from Cheta Egel, which was the seventeenth day of Tammuz until Nisan, so if you think about it from July until April, right? There's no communication, which must have been very difficult. And they've been given a mitzvah. Now, according to Rashi, that mitzvah was given to them as a result of Chet Egel. According to the Rabban, it was always meant to be. But however you look at it, it's certainly clear that they've been building this Mishkan. They've spent six, seven months collecting all the materials, the artisans are at work. They finally finished the job. You don't just open it up. You have a whole ceremony. And Moshe, who is basically the Kohen Gadol, right, at this point, is going to transfer the kahuna, the priesthood, to Aaron. 
So for seven days, every morning, Moshe wakes up with Aaron, Nadav Aviyu, Elazar, and Itamar, right? His four sons, Aaron's four sons. And they put together the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and they go through the routine, and they learn everything they're supposed to do. And then they take it apart. And then the next day they do it again. In fact, if you remember last week, we had a discussion before Shvi Shel Pesach, or this week actually, before Shvi Shel Pesach, we had a discussion about why you need a seven-day uh, Chag, why you need a seven-day festival. And, you know, they should just have had one day to commemorate getting out of Egypt. We suggested that seven days allows you to internalize something. Well, this is a perfect example. They, they spend seven days until they get it. And then they get to the eighth day. And the eighth day, they wake up and they put it all together. Only now, they're going to transition from Moshe to Aaron. Moshe will step back. Moshe will walk away. Moshe will no longer be able to enter the places where Aaron, for example, will be able to enter, unless he's called, and even then with exception. And, and this is a tremendous day. Right? Yom Chanukat Mishkan, And the Pesukim reflect this. And if you look um, sort of at the end of Perak Tet, the end of the ninth chapter, Vayavo Moshe Ve'aron Elol Moed. It's interesting that it says Vayavo Moshe, and he came. It should say Vayavo, and they came. Why does it say Vayavo Moshe Ve'aron? Because they came as one. Why is it so important for us to know that Moshe and Aaron came as one? Because, because maybe, because the Torah has had so many instances where brothers just cannot get it together, right? You know, Yitzchak and Yishmael, whoever's right, whoever's wrong, Yishmael has to leave. Yaakov and Esav doesn't work out. Yosef and his brothers... They make a rapprochement in the end, but it doesn't really work out that well. And even after Yaakov dies and Yosef's on his deathbed, right, it's clear that this, this, this issue between them, between Joseph and his brothers, is still there. In fact, the reason that we make, according to some commentaries, the reason that on Friday nights we bless our children, you know, right, that Hashem should make our children be like Ephraim and Menashe, is because Ephraim and Menashe are the first two brothers who do not seem to have any conflict. In fact, Ephraim is chosen to be the leader and Menashe never says boo. So that it would seem at least that sibling rivalry and jealousy is absent, which is quite incredible that Yosef is able to, to teach that to his children after everything he went through. right? So, the, so if you could pick a place in the Torah where one would have expected some degree of jealousy, it would have been here. Because Moshe has been the leader of the Jewish people, and Hashem says to him, you're not going to be the Kohen Gadol. You are not going to be the high priest. There are different opinions. One opinion in Chazal says that the reason that Moshe, that Moshe actually was originally supposed to be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, he loses this because, either because he takes the Jewish people to task, right? They won't, they won't listen at the burning bush. Or because he doubts, you know, sort of that, uh, you know, that, that, ostensibly that Aaron will be okay with his being the leader, right? And Hashem says, no, Aaron will come and see you and rejoice. And so as a kind of a sting for that mistake, Aaron will become the Kohen Gadol. Okay, there are other reasons given. And yet it says, they're both totally connected, totally at one. Even though Moshe comes first, Aaron will be the Kohen Gadol, great. Vayetzu, it doesn't say Vayetzei. Vayetzu, they come out. And one might suggest that they come out as two, because now they have two different roles. 
But even though they have two different roles, Moshe is the Navi, and Aaron is the Kohen, right? And they bless the people. And we've spoken about the concept of bracha, Hashem berachat Avram bakol, Hashem increases Avram's wealth. A bracha is to increase the presence of Hashem in our life, right? That's our salvechik. So they bring Hashem back into the picture. That the presence of Hashem is naturally increased in the eyes of the Jewish people. And indeed, that's what happens. The, the, the glory, the honor of Hashem appears to the entire Jewish people. They are back. The schism that occurred as a result of Cheta Egel is now done, and something has come back. Right? And a fire comes from before Hashem. It's not accidental. It doesn't say Vatetse Eish. A fire comes from Hashem. That's important. right? It's not just that there's fire, that Moshe did something right or Aaron did something right, but Hashem is recognizing this. And it consumes on the altar, the newly dedicated altar, the korban ola, the whole burnt offering, the chalavim, right? all the things you're supposed to burn, the fats, whatever. And the people see this. Now, what does it mean to the people when they see this? What does it mean after six months of being incommunicado with God that all of a sudden Hashem has accepted your offerings and has consumed them on the altar? It means that we're back. It means we've been forgiven. And in that moment, vayaronu, they experience a joy that's described as rina. Rina is a joy that has no words. You can get to a moment where you're so full of joy that you can't describe it, right? It's like if you pass a test, right, and you come home and your family says, how'd it go? And you say, well, you've got a lot to talk about. But if somebody misses the wedding and says to you, so I'm sorry I missed your wedding, how was it? You can't describe that. It's beyond description, the joy that you feel. In fact, people who are smart, they find ways to hang on to that and to go back to that moment when they need a moment like that in their life. I actually sang to read down to the chuppah. It was completely impromptu. She didn't know it was coming. In fact, you can see on the video, she kind of has a surprised look on her face. I guess in retrospect, there's a little bit of a risk. But uh, I just, I don't know. I was just so, I had to do something. I hadn't seen her in a week. Here comes this vision in a bridal dress. And if I sing that niggin and I close my eyes, I can go back to that moment. Now, there's no words for moments like that. When your child is born. Could you describe the moment when, 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 you know, when you first become a grandparent? There's no words to that. So that's Rina. And I think one of the reasons that there's no words for moments like that is because whether we know it or not, we experience Hashem in those moments. We experience the infinite. We experience that which is the Ein Sof, which has no words, has no definition, is unlimited. The absolute unlimitedness. So we experience Rina. And they fall on their faces, the Jewish people, almost as though the physical, the body doesn't matter. We, we, the, the physical that we see is too limited to express what we're feeling. Right? By the way, every time in the Torah, when someone doesn't know what to do, can't describe, can't express, can't explain, they fall on their faces. When Moshe and Aaron have no idea what to do, they fall on their faces. Right? Okay. So now comes a very difficult piece. Because 
I think what makes it difficult is the fact that we're at a moment of such intense joy. You know? It's like, um, uh, I remember my Aaron told me once that uh, Kirk Douglas once told him, right? Kirk Douglas recently passed away. He was uh, 103 years old. It's nice to be with an audience who actually knows who he was, right? Famous actor. And he somehow was discussing with Rabbi Aaron what drama is. Because you know what drama is? Drama is not that something intense happens. When they want to create a sad moment in a movie, you'll never see that the actor is told that his father died when he's sitting all alone depressed in a study. They'll wait until he's in the middle of a high. It's his 50th birthday party, and they're bringing out the cake, and everybody's smiling, everybody's laughing, and just at that moment, someone will walk in and whisper something in his ear. And the contrast of his sudden shock with the joy around him is drama. That's why we're a people full of drama. Because one minute we're, we're, we're in the shadows of Buchenwald, and the next minute we're standing dancing in Tel Aviv. That's the drama of Jewish history, right? This is probably the most dramatic moment in the entire Torah. It doesn't say It says which is an important point. They were the sons of Aaron. Why is that important? Why do we need to know? We know who they are. Okay. They each take their machteh. Machteh is like a censer that picks up the incense, right? And they put what's probably a coal, the coal of, of with the incense in it. They put the incense, the, 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 the mixture on top of the coal. And when the, when, the, when the burning coal ignites the incense, that's what creates the smoke and the smell and whatever else. And they offer it up before Hashem. Now there's those same two words. Right? They are before Hashem. The fire came out and consumed the sacrifices. They come back to before Hashem. They, they, they want to capture that moment. And it's the same, it's the same moment. But they're offering an Eish Zara Asher it's, it's a it's a It's a foreign offering fire that they have not been commanded to do. Okay. So a fire comes out before Hashem. Now this is interesting. If you stopped here, since you just saw those exact words, used to describe that Hashem accepted their offering, you would think this is going to be as high as we think we are. Look, we're getting even higher. This is going to be amazing. Right? And then the same word again, Vatochal, and it consumes them. So again, if I stop, something's amazing. Only now everything changes. Instead of consuming the incense, it consumes them. And they die before Hashem, that same Lifnei Hashem. So, so this is a very difficult moment. Aaron, in the same moment that he's becoming Kohen Gadol, the first instance of a dedication of a holy space in Jewish history, right? It's the predecessor of the Beit HaMikdash of the Temple. And it's the beginning of the Kahuna, because you don't really have Kohanim. You don't have priests before there's a Beit HaMikdash. And in that moment, Aaron's sons die. So Moshe says, Right? So we've actually discussed this in the past. Baruch Sturman has a wonderful article on this. Right, the, 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 the Moshe is dealing with the tragedy in whatever way he deals with it. What's interesting here is exactly what happened here. 
I suspect because the language is exactly the same, the rabbis, the commentators, seem to be divided. In fact, if you really look, you can find at least 14 different explanations, possibly 15 for what happened here. And what's really fascinating is they're divided. Some of them, you know, are negative. None of you did something wrong. They were more halacha bifnei rabo. They taught in front of their teacher. They were drunk. Some of them are incredibly elevated. They they were so pure they couldn't stay in this world. They were beyond this world, right? And I think because it's exactly the same language, rabbis have an easy time saying maybe this was still something good. But I want to focus on Rav Shimshon Falhersh. Rav Shimshon Falhersh has a fascinating opinion. He says that what happened in this moment was that they were consumed by passion. They needed a pause, and they didn't get it. They were caught up in the moment. And they were so caught up in the moment that they just wanted to do more. This is so amazing. It's like, you know, sometimes, you ever have a moment where, I don't know, you're at the wedding. If you go to a wedding, you listen to a wedding band. There are different things that, that help to define whether a band is a really good band. I'll tell you one of them. It's just an opinion. A really good wedding band knows when to stop. You stop the, the dancing when they're on a high, right? Sometimes a band doesn't get it. Everybody's dancing, they're into it. But then people are getting tired. And then it's like you want to have your dinner. And so people got to drop off, right? But they do another song and another song. And then what happens is the chas and the kal, they're left with like the 10, 15 friends, and they're trying to keep the circle going. And it just ends on the down. You have to finish, you have to stop when they're high, right? It's like a person is so caught up in the moment, the band is so into it, they've lost the crowd, right? We do that as speakers sometimes, you know? I'm always better off when my wife is in the audience because I'll get that look, I know that look. Like, less is more, right? So none of you get caught up in the passion of the moment, right? But they're leaders, a leader shouldn't need to express joy greater than those of the people. The joy of the leader should be the joy of the people. And if the carbon has been accepted, if the offering has been accepted and the people are rejoicing, then that's it. You don't need another offering. Their offering should be your offering. You know, I remember, I'm reminded, I was once at a wedding and... I remember I was like, you know, in the, you know how like there's these concentric circles. And the middle circle is usually like the chatan for me, because I'm a man, the, the groom, and, um, you know, his close family, his close friends. And then there's like a circle around them, you know, like sort of closer friends. And then there's like what we call the altakaker circle in the back, you know. Either people who feel like I'm getting dinner, I should at least dance and be part of the community. But, you know, I, it'd be okay with me if the dance is But it's nice for the chasnikal that there's a bigger dancing audience, right? So I was once somewhere in one of these outer circles and I noticed that the Chatan had this moment. He was dancing and he grabbed one of his brothers and then another one of his brothers and then his father, right? And this is a boy from a large family and there were five or six of them and they were just dancing in the middle, you know? And it was just one of those perfect moments. And usually when you see that, you just want to make sure that the other side, because the father of the Kala, so he doesn't... But it just so happened that he was there. there was, it was Mamash, a pure moment. There wasn't anybody else need to come in. And there was a rabbi, who actually was a very well-respected, great rabbi, 
got himself into trouble later, but whatever. And he was a Torah scholar or whatever. And I guess he missed the chuppah. He came late. And he came in. And I happened to notice him. And I see him. He's like pushing his way through the circles. And he pushes his way into the middle of the circle. Now, I guess, look, I don't know. Only Hashem knows what's in the hearts of men. So I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm just saying my perception of what happened. He pushes himself into the circle, grabs the father, grabs the boys and starts dancing with them. And I remember thinking... And you could see, and after that it just broke up because the, the boys weren't interested in dancing with the rabbi. He was caught up in his passion. He just he, Maybe he loved his father or loved the chatan or whatever it was so much that he lost the moment. He didn't realize that he was trying to create a moment instead of enjoying watching a moment that already existed. We do this sometimes. We get caught up too much by the passion. And every human being on some level is a leader to some degree. And we have to be conscious of who's around us and how's around us and how we affect what's around us. And I'll give you a great example on the negative side of things that we've actually spoken about before. Right? The Rambam in Hilchot Deot, um, you know I love Hilchot Deot, the Rambam um, has an interesting halacha. In Perak Aleph halacha, no, Perak Bet halacha Dalet, the fourth halacha in, uh, in the second chapter of Hilchot Deot, a person should always practice silence, a lot of silence. Don't talk unless you're going to speak either wisely or in a balanced fashion or things that you need. Like obviously you can talk if you need someone to pass you the water, right? But limit your speech. Now where does the Rambam place this? He places this right after the halacha that speaks about anger. In halacha Gimel it says, Right? The, the anger is an extremely bad quality. And it's worthy that a person should distance himself from anger to the extreme. Now we've talked about this. Sometimes one has to show anger as an educator, you know, or as a parent. But you shouldn't be angry when you show anger. You first have to let go of your anger. And once you know you're not angry, the Ramam says this, then you can feign anger if a person needs to feel angry. But why does the Rambam place these two halachas right next to each other? Because the best antidote to anger is to take that pause. Anger is a passion. When you're caught up in passionate moments, in fact, it's interesting, character flaws inevitably come because we're too focused on ourselves. Right? A person becomes arrogant because he's too focused on himself. Anger is all about expectations. When I'm caught up in the passion of anger, even annoyance, I'm a little too focused on me. Nadav and Aviyu then were caught up in themselves. They may not have realized they were caught up in themselves. But says Rav Shimshon of Al-Hirsh, a leader isn't supposed to be caught up in himself. It's not about him or her. A leader is meant to be thinking about the people. And it's interesting that in Parshat Shmini, right? by the way, just before the Halachot of Kashrut, after this whole story is over, in Parshat Shmini, we talk about all the laws of, 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 of kosher animals, etc. Because eating, there's nothing more self-absorbing than eating. And even when I eat, it shouldn't be about me. I should eat to live and not live to eat. Right? So perhaps we learn this lesson of learning to take a pause. And there are a number of, of, of different uh, examples, all through Tanakh, that speak to this issue. I'll give you three off the top of my head. Moshe Rabbeinu leaves the palace walks out, sees an Egyptian beating a Jew. We all know the story. And he kills the Egyptian. 
But if you look carefully at those verses, it doesn't just kill the Egyptian. It says, Vayifen kova kova He looks this way, that way, and sees that no one's there. Now on a pshat level, he's afraid he's going to get caught. But the rabbis have a field day with this verse, and they suggest that Moshe's taking a pause. Who is this person? Is this the right decision? Am I caught up in a throw of anger or mercy or passion? Or is this going to be thought out? And precisely because this is thought out, even though it causes him serious consequence, in the long run, it becomes the right thing to do. Right? Um, Yosef, when Yosef is confronted by Eshet Potiphar, so before the instance where he uh, sort of runs away from her, you know, and she's holding his clothing, whatever else. There's um, there's a there's a verse before that. It says, uh, which is a powerful pasuk for another time. His wife sees him, right? Potiphar's wife sees Yosef, and she says, "Sleep with me." And he has a chance to just sleep with her, and and this will make his life a lot easier. And he refuses. And he gives, you know, my, my master is so good to me, how can I do this? But on that word, that's one of the famous five instances in the Torah where we find the Shalshalat. That's right, where we find the Shalshalat. And generally speaking, Rabbi Sachs actually has a wonderful article about this. Shalshalat, this, this, it represents hesitation. He takes a pause. And because he takes that pause, and he gets a little beyond himself, and he can see the bigger picture, he does the right thing, which must have been a very difficult thing for him to do, given the circumstances. That's the challenge of Parshat Shemini. That's maybe one thing we can learn from this story of Nadav and Aviyu. Um, I don't think it's an accident that this story has pretty much always, between this Parsha and, 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 and after Tazriya Mitzorah, Haremot, so that part of the Nadav and Aviyu story is always going to fall around Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaTzmaut. Because those are days of passion. Those are days where we get caught up. Those are days where, how, how can we understand this? And what does Hashem want of us? And we should just go out and bop each other in shaving cream, etc. And Jesus says, slow down. Take a pause. Think about the bigger picture. And for us in our lives, you know, Hashem has given us this, this humongous pause. This magnificent, challenging, introspective period of time. It's almost like the world is being forced to pick, take a pause. Shem should bless us that we use this pause and come out on the other side, the wiser, the better, the more balanced, um, better society, better world. And, uh, thanks, thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.